All right. Well, we're going to get you to kind of get back to your, uh, your seats and, and settle in. Typically, we would uh, be taking a, a five-minute break so that you could do a lot of this interaction, but we thought, it, we thought the kids were a little bit better looking maybe than your neighbor. And uh, is that fair? No, that's not good. Okay. <laughs> it is good. But this morning, um, we're going to continue in with our message. And uh, to do that this morning, uh, we've got Zach Wiley, who is one of our global mission partners. Let's say good morning to him, first of all, out of Thailand. Him and his family flew in on Friday, so Zach's probably a little tired right now, but uh, what you are about to hear this morning is, is phenomenal, and it, it's actually such a privilege of ours to be able to have our partners come home, but especially with this, to be able to land you to communicate God's Word this morning. So Zach, I'm super excited that you're here today, and man, what, what I heard in the 9 a.m. gathering, I'm excited for this crowd now to kind of hear this, and so you're in for a, a good word. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to release this to Zach, and he's going to give us a pretty fantastic word this morning. So Father, thank you so much for, for Zach. Thank you for bringing him, Megan, and the kids back uh, over here safely. And I pray that this season would be a good one for them. I ask that you'll bring rest into their bodies and that you'll allow them to enjoy family time that they often don't get a lot of. And I ask that this morning that you would unloose this man to speak your word with power and with anointing. Holy Spirit, I invite you to just have your way with us today. Allow us to not only just hear your word, help us to do your word today. And so we give you thanks for this moment. We're excited for it. We love you, Jesus, and we pray these things in your name. Amen. Amen. Have fun. Check one. Can you guys hear me? Check. Awesome. So uh, one of the things that I uh, like to attempt to do is invite you into a bit of a cultural moment. And so it is Christmas, and it's been nice to come back here and unashamedly proclaim Merry Christmas to people. I'm going to be thrown out of any coffee shops or Walmart or anything yet. Uh, in Thailand, we can say it, and no one is like, what? Why did you say that? Uh, no cultural faux pas for saying Merry Christmas. But in Thai, we say, Suksan Wan Christmas. Can you try it? Ready? Suksan, one Christmas. And it basically means uh, happy Christmas or Merry Christmas. So if it's a new year, we say Suksan Pimai. If it's Christmas, we say Suksan, one Christmas. So welcome. Uh, Christmas started a little bit over a month and a bit ago in Thailand. Um, it kind of threw up on Thailand. You could smell, taste, see, hear it. 7-Eleven is playing Christmas music. <laughs> Mariah Carey, Michael Buble. They all came to Thailand already. The malls, like when you walk into the mall in November, like bigger Christmas trees than I've ever seen in my life. The smells, man, not just chili, garlic, but cinnamon. Starbucks is in Thailand, and so they're serving all those pumpkin spice lattes, toffee nut things, and then like a bajingle, uh, what did you guys, what did you call it? Bajingles and jammies. Uh, a bajingle amount of other flavors of Christmas are there. So in Thailand, in Bangkok in particular, where our family is, you can smell Christmas, you can taste Christmas, you can hear Christmas, you can see it. But I was talking to the principal of the school <clears throat> that our kids go to, and uh, he's an English lad, and I said, but you don't feel it in the same way. <clears throat> Thailand, 70 million people, 94% Buddhist, 5% Muslim, roughly 1% Christian. Christianity growing at a faster uh, rate of growth than population is, and so Thailand's in a unique time 
But when culturally you want to smell, see, taste, and hear something, but you can't feel it, it's because it's not within the hearts of the people that are there. And so there's something special for us about coming back to a place where uh, though we're post-Christian and we kind of find ourselves moving away from that Judeo-Christian mindset, there's something about the people and what they embody and then give to the world. Advent. The expectation or the arrival of hope and joy and peace and love. A calling not just to experience the word, but to be people who embody it and give it back. And um, I, I wanted to say thank you for giving it back for over $50,000 in over six and a half years of us being there. Uh, last year, you guys helped raise a bunch of money through the Christmas catalog, which has been super helpful for us. Our, one of our primary focuses last year was to help support our founder and director. We call her the Mother Teresa of Thailand, uh, because that's the kind of human being she is, uh, who's multiplying herself in national leaders, training them how to do solar cell water systems for uh, women and children and families that are escaping a tyrannous, dictator, murderous government that unashamedly bombs its own people in Myanmar, so they flee across the line into Thailand in hopes of safety but don't have access to clean drinking water and so through you you've helped provide access to clean drinking water to nearly a hundred thousand people I think you've put in ten water systems in that region alone uh, through multiplying herself P. Limoy is training people to help both maintain those but then develop water systems that can be used by people who are helping to wander back and forth across the river between Thailand and Myanmar so they can have access to clean drinking water. Last year, you guys helped us actually supply, I think it was like 100 portable water systems that are like these big paint cans uh, that are, are DIY, DIY style that people could just have uh, within the jungle as they were waiting for the bombs to stop dropping so they could return to home. That was because of you. Over 1,000 cups that are used for soy milk distribution to provide protein-rich soy milk to kids who don't have access to any other forms of protein for the week came through you. Teacher training, teachers who have fled this oppressed government, who have come across into Thailand, who maybe have grade six education but don't have any training beyond that, are able to receive training because our team there, which is funded and supported by you. Not only have you given funds, but you've also given people. We have had people come almost every year that we've been there to help install water systems, to help distribute soy milk, to lead language camps. Uh, our last team, just before COVID hit, came and built a, a, a kitchen. Little did we know that that kitchen would be used to prepare over 100,000 meals for the community. That that center would become ground zero for COVID relief for an entire community. Your generosity, because of his generosity to us. And so uh, you've been part of delivering hope in the form of very practical things, but by providing access to really practical things, you've actually given us a platform to proclaim more than just clean water and soy milk and agriculture training or teacher training, but the giver of that hope and life and those pieces that are necessary for living. And so thank you for being part of that. And today we get to read and kind of focus on something that someone would refer to as the gospel within the gospel. It's found in Luke chapter 15. And uh, it's a story that uh, is called the story of the prodigal son, <clears throat> but really it's a story of the prodigal sons, and not just a story of the prodigal sons, but the story of a prodigal father. And <clears throat> the, the story and the implications of it culturally can be applied anywhere. 
But if we particularly look at the cultural understanding of this story through a Middle Eastern lens, it helps illuminate even further the significance of this idea of a prodigal father, lavish and extravagant, some would even say reckless in his love. A son and a, another son, a young son and an older son, reckless in the words that they use and the lives that they choose, but a father who is reckless, scandalous in his response to them. And so it begins in Luke chapter 15, and it says the tax collectors and the sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled. They're upset. Why are tax collectors and sinners gathering close to Jesus? This man receives sinners, and he eats with them. And now culturally, for him to even consider Jesus eating with people would have thrown these scribes and Pharisees off, because these scribes and Pharisees were highly religious people who felt they were self-appointed. Our job is to protect the name of the God of Israel, the religion of the people of Israel. And the only way that people can know and understand this is if they subscribe to the certain set of standards and rules that we say are necessary. And all of a sudden, this guy named Jesus, who's yet to reveal himself as the Son of God, is, is causing people to not have to enter his presence. They're saying that God can, that this holy, pure, perfect God can eat and spend time with sinners because culturally, eating a meal with somebody at that time would be affirming their lifestyle. How can he do that? This couldn't and shouldn't be. And so as we look at this text, it's important for us to remember that Luke, who is a physician who spent a bit of time with Jesus, was writing both to, to, to speak against the accusations that were being lodged against this, this, this Jesus, that what he was doing was not okay. And then number two, it was to help paint a picture of this father heart of this scandalously, recklessly loving God who spends time with people that he shouldn't spend time with. And so we have the gospel, the good news, in its purest form in this parable of the prodigal son, sons, and father. And there's this redemptive story that's found within it. And so as you read it on your own time or as we reflect on it here, remember that a parable is something that, that, that gives way to helping us understand something at a deeper level. It's like a story that teaches a lesson. And here the lesson is, this is what the father heart of God looks like. And when he tells these stories, when Jesus tells these parables, the beginning, a lost sheep and a shepherd going out to find it, and a woman who's lost some coin, a coin and going out to find it, and when she finds it, she calls people to rejoice because she's found what is lost. It actually makes things worse for Jesus because there's no way God could be like this. And it ultimately leads to his crucifixion. And so there's a man with two sons. And his, the, the importance or the depth of this story really isn't understood unless we take a look at both his relationship with the young son, his relationship with the elder son. <clears throat> and so a quick run through the familiar story. So the young son breaks his father's heart basically says, dad, it's time to die. He doesn't say that. He says it through, I would like my inheritance while you are still living. And so the dad, surprisingly, culturally, gives him his one third because he's got an older son in him at this point and gives him his third. And so the son goes and finds a forex and cashes it in because he goes away to a foreign country. And the story is, as he <clears throat> squanders everything it is that he has, 
And thankfully for him, the country that he's gone to is ravished by famine. And he realizes like, oh man, life sucks here. Even the pigs that are on the farm of my father are eating better than me. And so the Bible says that he, he came to his senses, and when he came to his senses, because he remembers how good his father is, even to the hired ones, he decides, maybe I should go home. And if you read the scripture, he begins to get a, a, like a speech ready. So imagine the son has gone away, realizes the audaciousness of what it is that he's done, and begins to think, what am I going to say to my dad when I get back? And so as he begins to think about this, he's like, I will rise, I'll go to my father, and I'll say to him, it says it in verse 18, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. It's like, could you just let me back into your home? Maybe here? And then he's overwhelmed by this series of incredible sur surprises because everything, absolutely everything that the father does in relationship to the younger son is culturally unexpected. It's culturally scandalous. Shouldn't happen. First of all, the father's waiting. I remember when I was a youth and was at a conference and there was this guy who was telling this story in a very modern format. Dad, opening the curtains, looking down the driveway, down the street, late at night, checking every now and then, like, is, he, is, my, is my child coming home yet? He's coming home yet. I think in light of this advent, which is all about this expectation and this arrival, like, when are they going to come? Are they going to come back? Is it going to come now? Is it going to come now? Is it going to come now? Sending a text message to friends who are coming. We're going to some friend's place for a dinner at, at the end. Maybe if we're late, they're like, are you coming? Are you here? Modern-wise, maybe his dad would be sending them messages, being like, you coming back yet? Send an email, ignored. He's just being ghosted by his dad, left, right, and center. The dad's being ghosted. All of a sudden, the Bible tells us that he's waiting. He should have rejected him. And then the father runs. I mean, this is incredibly shameful for a man of his stature and his age. He should not be running to his son. His son should be running towards him in desperation. Then he embraces the son. And he doesn't just embrace him. He gives him a robe. He gives him clothes, shoes on his feet, a ring to symbolize he's a son. And he shouldn't have even touched him, let alone given him anything. And then he takes it a step further and he kisses his son. Like in our Canadian culture, that doesn't necessarily take place and happen. But here it would, it would have been a sign of affection. It would have been a sign of acceptance. He never should have touched him, let alone kissed him. And then in all of this, what's actually happening is he's taking the shame, which is due to this boy, and he's transferring it onto himself. Because if the son was to go back, the risk was to submit himself to the scorn and the slander and the physical abuse of the people who were in the city, in the village, on the street. It would be like somebody jumping on a ferry, getting to Sydney, and he gets to Sydney, and people are like, oh man, I've heard of this guy. The captain on the radio is like, boys, the, the son who left is coming back. People are like, who is this guy? Rolls into Colwood on a bus. Some people are like, is that the son? He's coming back. Is this him? This is the one who left and took everything. Rolls on to Glenridge Drive. First house on the corner, lots of cars. Think they've probably illegally got too many people living there. They start talking. He's back, he's back. 
Some people pick up some rocks and they begin throwing it because that would have been okay. What are you doing back? Why are you here? And then he's got to get to his dad's house. Shows up on Glenridge. Is my dad going to accept me? What about the hired hands? Like, they know what I've done. Stones would be okay. Flatter words. That was all due to him. And the son, when he embraces him and runs to him, people would have been like, what is he doing? Why is he touching him? Is he putting clothes, a, a ring on his finger? Kisses? And then, guys, go get out our prized calf. We're going to kill fat calf. We're going to kill the fattened calf. What? It's like, this is saved to the most esteemed guests of honor in the home. And the son who shamed his father and left away is getting this? Scandalous. Unexpected. Transferring, you're picking up on this, transferring the shame that was due to him and placing it on himself. This is my son. He's not even going to be a slave, a hired hand. This is my son, and I'm welcoming him home. A gesture of hospitality given only to the most honored of guests. Let's have a party to celebrate the homecoming of my son. And in this first half of the parable, what this is actually telling us about God and, and essentially really ticking off the scribes and the Pharisees, who are zealous to protect the reputation of this pure and holy God in the religion, is that God is a father who embraces repentant sinners and parties with them. The Holy One risks his entire divine reputation in order to welcome home one lost son. Everything the father does is culturally unexpected and scandalous. And Jesus, in this telling of this parable, is, is revealing a waiting, a suffering, running, sinner, embracing, sinner, kissing, shame, taking on father. What about the interaction between the father and the older son? Verse 25. I think the older son represents probably a chunk of people in this room. They haven't run off to a faraway country. He didn't say, Dad, I'd rather you dead. Haven't squandered our family's wealth. We've sought to be faithful and obedient. We've maybe accepted Jesus as a young person and have faithfully served him our whole life and played on the band and helped in Sunday school and always made our bed when our mom or dad told us to and did our homework on time and wrote thank you letters to grandma when it was appropriate. It was this kind of person. But what we discover in the second half of this parable is that although the older son never goes away to the country, he nevertheless breaks his father's heart. See, there's two kinds of sinners. There's law breakers and there's law keepers. Wait, what? And both of them stand in need of grace. So the older son, he's out in the field, faithful, obedient son, doing what his father has asked him to do. And he hears music in the background. Does anyone have a song that you think? No? I imagined it like, probably not. But the older son's in the field, and, and then he's filled with joy. And he's like, my father was depressed and upset. My, son, my brother, who's cast shame on our family, has 
caused him to fall into such grief, and now my father's finally turning on Mariah Carey for Christmas, and he's celebrating. No, no, no. He's suspicious. And he says to one of the hired hands, what is, what, what's, what's, what's going on? And he said, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he's received him back safe and sound. What? My, 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 my brother's back and my dad is throwing a party and, and he's not just throwing a party, but he's throwing a party for the most honored and highest esteemed guest. He's killed the thing that has been being waited to be slaughtered for somebody of great honor and esteem. And my brother, he, he's, he's back, and this is what's happening? I mean, the younger son had brought shame on the name of the father, on the village, and he's not being punished to measure up or asked to measure up. Son didn't come back, and dad was like, you're right, hired hand, prove to me over the next week that we can trust you, and then you're welcome back in. And then maybe I'll give you clothes. And then maybe I'll give you a room. And then maybe I'll... Just a moment of confession. Sometimes that's how I'm like with my kids. Oh, you want what? No, remember, when you chose to do this, you also chose the consequence. And the consequence of that is this. Father, you don't have to... You don't have to measure up. And so the scribes and the Pharisees, which believe that nobody could be saved without means of conformity to the rules, their belief was that you can only come back into the fold if and when you've measured up. Have you met the regulations to come back into this home yet? But when the son comes home before he even measures up, before he even promises to measure up, Jesus offers us an image of a different kind of repentance, which I think it shocks some of us even here. The son, the young son, the Bible tells us he came to his senses. I mean, sometimes maybe that's us. It's like all of a sudden we come to our senses. We haven't made any other choices than we just realize like, this is messed up. <laughs> Or like, something's a little bit off in my heart, in my mind right now. But you haven't been like, and then I'm going to do this, and then I'm going to do that. And I'm going to finish this, and then I'm going to do that, and this is going to make me good. No, it's just, he came to his senses, and when he came to his senses, he's like, man, I have sinned against God in heaven. I'm going to go home, and I'm going to ask to be a hired hand. I've got to earn my way back into the kingdom. He recognizes he sinned against heaven and God's sight. He comes home, banking on the mercy and grace of God and his works, and the older son is so angry because the father himself is upsetting the older son's understanding of religious and righteous people. He's so angry because the father is bringing further shame on himself. And as a result of that, on the older son, he's singing, he's dancing, he's killing a calf. And as a result of that, this is like shocking. Verse 28, the older son, the Bible says, was not willing to go in. It's like he comes to the edge of the house. He hears what's going on. He's like, what, what is happening in there? And he refuses to go in. And by refusing to go in, culturally, he's actually bringing shame on his dad. So he's upset at his younger brother for bringing shame on his dad. And then he's doing the same thing. Because if you were the older brother and your dad had killed the fattened calf, as the eldest son, your responsibility is to welcome everybody in, serve everybody their food, and then host the esteemed honor, the esteemed guest of honor. And who's that? The younger brother. But... Not only is there a party, 
but it's for my brother? And he doesn't, dad hasn't given him a list of rules to adhere to before he can come back in? And so he refused, he was not willing to go in, he was not willing to be received into the house, and by doing that, he brings shame onto his dad. Furthermore, the elder son, as I said, would have been expected to honor the guest, and as a result of that, by refusing to do that, he's bringing further shame, not just on his father, but on his brother, and then on his family, and then a result of that, it just cascades from there. And so the older son breaks the father's heart, perhaps even at a deeper level, get this, than the younger son. And what is the father's unexpected and scandalous response? Again, Jesus trying to help us understand the heart of a holy God. How does the father respond? Unexpectedly. Scandalously. Everyone expected culturally, that the father would ignore or punish. I'll tell you what I would do. If it was my son, I would go out, make sure my back was to everybody so they couldn't see what I was saying with my lips, and I would say something like, you're going to get inside right now. You're going to serve everybody, and then you're going to serve your brother. And then when this is all over, you and I are going to have a little sit-down and conversation. We're going to talk about what's going on right now. I would say that because I've said that to my kids. And if it was my four-year-old son, he would go quiet and wouldn't really look at me and wouldn't do what I asked him to do until he was ready. And my seven-year-old would argue with me. I'm like, what, why, how come? And ask questions. You stop yelling at me. You. But the father comes out of the house because the son refused to go in. And for the second time that day, we watched the father humiliate himself publicly in front of all of his friends, in front of all of his family, in front of the village, not to condemn the son, but to take shame upon himself and offer grace, love, and acceptance. And in the two halves of this parable we see in the first half, the father takes on the shame of the law-breaking sinner. In the second half of the parable, we see him taking on the shame of the law-keeping sinner. The father loves both. Sinner, tax collectors, and the scribes and the Pharisees who were zealous to protect this holy God. He leaves the party to plead with his son to see life from his perspective, from the perspective of the father's heart. And it's the same thing that he's doing with us. Please, won't you see your fellow human beings in the same way that I see them? Do you see it, he says. Do you get it? The 11th century scholar, 11th century scholar says, look at the heart of the father, full of tenderness and love. He leaves the party to plead with the older son to come in. It's as though his joy is incomplete when one of his children is grieving. So how does the older son then respond to the scandalous love of the father? The younger one humbles himself, comes to his senses, comes home contrastingly, as we've kind of read. The older son insults his father. We see it in his speech. Older, the younger son had a speech. I've sinned against God. Maybe I could, you know, work my way back in it. But the older son begins his speech 
with his dad. No honorific fa title, father, dad, just look. It begins with a lecture. Look, look, I have served you my entire life. I've been obedient. I've done what you've asked me to do. And you've never given me a calf for me and my friends. And by doing this, he was disassociating himself from the family and the friends that were in there, bringing further, letting us even further into his own mindset of how different he was than his son, or than, than his younger brother. Dad, I've served you. I've done everything right. And you've never even given me this. And then he continues to go on, insulting his younger brother. And he goes and squanders everything, spending it on prostitutes, implying that this is what's taken place. I mean, the older son is a rebel and he doesn't even know it. At least the younger son begins with father, a little bit of honor. The whole family's here. The whole village is here. All these years, I've served you and never disobeyed your order. What's wild here is that it actually reveals that he thinks his relationship with the father is based on keeping rules. Anybody? I mean, this isn't a father and son relationship. That sounds a lot like a master and slave relationship. Trying, I need to ask my sons after this, hey, do you guys feel like the whole part, point of your relationship with me is just to keep rules? Like, is there any sense of love? Do you, like, do you, like, do you love me? Or do you just feel like you have to please me and the rules that I have for you? All these years, the older son had missed the point. I think as many older sons and daughters often do, us included in this. The, under son, the younger son, he came with a speech, and his last point is to, God, Dad, maybe you could just make me a hired hand. And the thought that he had is that he could make himself in good standing by earning his way in, but he discovers that he can't. It's all by grace. And what a tragedy but the older son has been living in this third part of his younger brother's speech all his life. He stayed home rather than going away to the far country, but he never knew the father's heart, though he lived in his house his entire life. Let me say that again. He never knew the father's heart, though he lived in his father's house his entire life. And who's that? Is this me? Is this you? Is this us living in the father's house, resenting him, seeing him as a master and us as a slave trying to earn his love, his approval, his grace? How does the father portrayed by Jesus then respond to this wounding and incredibly insulting behavior of his son? You guessed it. Scandalously. Prodigal-like. Extravagant. Everyone expected him to be furious, but instead, he instead again humiliates himself in front of the whole village, and he pleads with the older son, beginning with son, or some translations, child. My child, he says, which actually is more tender than the word used to the younger son that he had spoken to. You've always been with me. Everything I have is yours. I mean, he ensures him of his status and his rights of what's due to him. 
The homecoming of his younger brother isn't going to threaten his status. The homecoming of another brother or sister isn't going to threaten your status or your place in your relationship with God. He's got enough. So God's only got 99.2 cents of grace and just spent 62 of it on that person. That only leaves 30 for the rest of us. No. He opens his heart. The father opens his heart. He reveals the pleading father of a the pleading heart of a father like a, like a father does and the father who pleads for his children to enter the joy that he has graciously offered to all. And so the invitation to each of us, just as it was to the older and to the younger, is come home. Come in. If the message to the younger son was come home, the message to the older son is come in. Come into the father's heart. I mean, perhaps you have been at home, but you've yet to come into his heart. Now, what would... Imagine realizing that. All those years, this older son thought that he was in the father's house because he had been faithful and obedient. My dad loves me because I'm faithful and obedient. That's why I get to stay here. And then when the younger son comes home, and he doesn't have to measure up first, boom. He was in the house, but he was not in his heart. Remember, scribes and Pharisees, religious people of the land, thought that their relationship with God was based on performance and character, and therefore they demand that the sinners, the tax collectors, everybody else relate to God on the same basis that they do. Performance and character. Whenever we think that we're in this same family because we earned it, we're going to demand others to do the same. But we didn't earn it. Say it with me. We didn't earn it. We didn't earn it. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Listen to the pleading father. Thank you. Maybe you need to hear this today. Hey, well done, my good and faithful servant. With you, I'm well pleased. What do you mean? I haven't done anything. I know. Well, how does that work? I'm in the family of God only for one reason. The Father has come out to me in his only begotten Son. He's taken on my shame and he's welcomed me into his scandalous love. No other reason. There is no other reason. And so what are we going to do in response to Jesus' parable? Well, young brothers and sisters, law keepers, come home. Come home. Older brothers and sisters, law keepers, sorry, come in. Come into his heart. Just because he loves you, let him be the father. This is kind of odd, the story, if you read it, this parable, all of a sudden it comes to a conclusion. He says, and he said to him, son, you're always with me and all that I have is yours. It was fitting to celebrate. Joy. What? It's fitting to, to celebrate? Be glad? For your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and he's found. Come and celebrate. Enter into this joy of this moment. You don't deserve it. You don't have enough to create it. It doesn't make sense that it should exist in this moment. 
but I've been waiting for your arrival. Just like I waited for your younger son's arrival, I've waited for your arrival, and I'm going to welcome you into the joy of this moment because it's something that I am. It comes out of me, and it welcomes you into it, and now you can come and participate in it. That's what I mean. Advent is about the arrival of this love, joy, peace, and hope. Not just words that we celebrate, but it's an invitation to come in and express these things to the people that are around us. That's why when Jesus came to earth, he didn't come to earth to just talk about it. He came to live it. And when people experienced it in him, the Bible tells us that they were perplexed. They were confused. He taught with authority and power that the scribes and the Pharisees didn't have. There was something that came out of him. And it's something that's supposed to come out of us. That's why he said, John 14, 12, behold, I'm going, I'm sending the Holy Spirit, and you will be able to do everything that I did and more as a result of that. And so Advent is an invitation to practice and exercise the things we're expecting before it's even come. And so what's crazy in this moment is that the parable finishes right here. Just come and enter into the joy. There's a prof who was teaching this in a context, a South Asian context, uh, to a bunch of pastors and leaders of a, a large Christian movement in the country. And he said, okay, so it's finished here. In your own culture, in your own context, what would happen now? Silence. He's speaking in English to people who spoke another language, and the translator said, if you don't answer, you're going to bring shame on the teacher. And so... The elder, eldest, with a cane, mutters something. He beat him. He says, Sorry, what did you say? And he stands up with his cane and he says, The older son would beat his dad. Beat him. This is what the scribes and the Pharisees were doing. They couldn't handle the portrait of a holy, loving, sits with, welcomes in, hugs, kisses, dresses, sinners. So in the name of holiness, they kill the holy one's self-manifestation The accusation that he welcomes sinners and eats with them becomes the cry, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And then, from the cross, one last scandalous word. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Joy unthinkable, joy unspeakable, not because we earned it, not because we deserve it, because of who he is, to think that we are waiting for the arrival of these things to come. And at that same moment of us waiting for the arrival of these things to come, there is a father who is waiting for your arrival to offer love and hope and peace for your pieces and joy because that's the kind of father, that's the kind of God we invite you to encounter not just the word, but the word made flesh. And that's Christmas.
And so, Lord, we come to you in this moment. Even as I'm speaking it again, God, I'm overwhelmed by your grace and your love for me that is undeserved. Man, I, I, like, I, I, I am so aware of how clearly I've blown it. And how much I often think that if I just did this or prayed this or sang this one more song or did this, that then maybe you would forgive me or you would... God, you think even sometimes it's like, oh God, you've taken your blessing from me because I did, said, or thought this. And that's not who you are. That's who I've described you to be. And so God, thank you for this reminder that I can come home, that I can come in, that we can come home, that we can come in to your love that is scandalous, your hope that is scandalous, your peace that is scandalous. It's reckless in its abundance. And in in a world where it seems that peace is hard to find, thank you that when you give it, you give it lavishly in a way that doesn't make sense. God, in a time in history where it's like we feel hopeless, that you can bring hope and give it lavishly in a way that we don't understand. God, in a season where we feel empty and and overlooked and unloved, that you can give it in a way that we don't understand. And that this term joy, God, that's beyond happiness, beyond our circumstances. It's something that you give because it's not just something that you give, it's something that you are. And man, when we encounter people who exude characteristics of who you are, it's like, what is going on in them? And so Lord, we thank you today for joy that comes in the weirdest of ways through death, through suffering, but it's something that you give. And so, God, we open our hands physically, our hearts, our minds, and say, Lord, we, we want to receive and understand and know that love, that joy, that peace, that joy, that hope. But more than that, God, because we've experienced it, we want to be that. And so thank you for your grace on our life. And thank you for this season that reminds us of not just who you are right now, but who you were, who you are, and who you will be, and invites us into not just a practice of these things for a moment or a season where we're extra kind and generous, but they're characteristics that you ask us to embody, and they just flow out of us because of our relationship with you. God, so for those who don't know you, who have never said yes to the Father, God, thank you that you say, come home. Thank you that you say, welcome in. Thank you say that I love you, God, that you place your clothes and your ring, your shoes on their feet, and you say, this is my son, my daughter, with, with whom I'm loved. You're a good, good father. And we're thankful for that reminder of it today. God, connect our hearts and minds with what it means to live that out with our sons and daughters, with our moms and dads, with our brothers and sisters. God, we want to love our neighbors as ourselves. God, we want to love ourselves as you love us. We want to love our neighbors as you love them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Church, can we say thank you to Zach for um, this morning?
I love how the Word of God, um, if, we're if we allow it to, will ask us questions. And I think you kind of gave us some questions today. So are you a lawbreaker or are you the law keeper? Some of you, you need to just come in and some of you need to come home. And one of the things that we offer every time we come to the, our Sunday gatherings is, you know, perhaps you're in this room today and you've heard this presentation or perhaps you're online and you've heard this presentation today and you've never given your life to this father and our hope for you would be that you would take the opportunity to know this Jesus who died for you rose for you and who says come home and if that's you today if, if you'd like to have that relationship with him our encouragement to you is if you would to text the word life to 250-478-7113 because we'd like to put a pastor in your path to help you with this process and this opportunity of accepting Christ. So take advantage of that today. And I hope that this week, church family, that you will walk in all of the elements of joy that we have talked about today. Because it's packaged in the person of Jesus Christ. So will you go into this week? Will you be the joy that this world needs? I love how our Bible instructs us that joy has come, and that is in the person of Jesus. So walk in that joy. If you're brand new and you're here in the room today, make sure you go visit the Welcome Center where Pastor Tyson and Pastor James are eagerly awaiting to see you. Uh, and it'll be good. But church, we love you. Have a fantastic week. We'll see you next Saturday at Jingles and Jammies on Saturday afternoon. We love you. And if you need an opportunity to come talk to Zach, he'll be up at the front here as well. We love you. Have a good week. Joy to the world. The Lord has come. Amen. Amen.